If you go against the government narrative, if you go against Big Pharma, then you're in trouble. And the problem that we're now facing is, in this country, the medical regulatory bodies are simply an arm of the government, okay? The GMC is an arm of the government. No matter what they say about it being independent, no it's not. They've got a privy council, privy council is part of the government. They've got rotating doors, you know, where people are coming in and out. And the, the GMC is essentially a civil service kind of run thing. The idea that it's a bunch of doctors running and looking after doctors is nonsense. It's mainly civil servants and those kind of people. And their job isn't, I'm afraid, to ensure patient safety. I think it's mainly to ensure government policy. They look after big pharma's interests. Okay, so it's really that simple. And the NHS comes across as a really nice fluffy organisation, but the problem is it's a centralised structure. And centralised structures inevitably become very, very corrupt, or easily corruptible, not healthy as an organisation for the, the staff within it or the people they're trying to treat. To survive in the NHS, you either have burnout and stressed because you care, or you learn not to care. It's a coping mechanism. It's not that these people are bad or cold or evil. To survive, you either get destroyed mentally or you just you just don't care anymore. Welcome to the Wellness Way with me, Philly J. Lay, a layperson's guide to your natural health systems. Your very own NHS. Hello lovely people and welcome to another episode of The Wellness Way and today's guest is a doctor that I hugely admire um, and he really needs no introduction if you listen to podcasts because I have in the studio today Doc Malik, Dr. Ahmed Malik. Welcome to The Wellness Way. Philly, thank you so much. You're really good at that. <laughs> <laughs> I've had a bit of practice love. <laughs> no, you're very good at that and it's really nice to come to your little studio. Honestly like it was so nice driving through here. Like, I'm only 35, 40 minutes away. Yeah. And suddenly, you know, you get out of all the urban areas and it gets all country roads. And then I'm like, where am I? And then hills and sheep everywhere. And it's just beautiful. This is a nice, I like the energy of this place. Yes, the energy is really important to me. As you know, I do all my woo-woo stuff. Um, <laughs> and energy is incredibly important to me. Uh, today's podcast episode... I'm going to ask you a question. What happens to doctors that question the narrative? <laughs> yeah. I don't know why I'm laughing. I should be crying. Yeah, <laughs> no, you should be crying. I think I have to laugh, otherwise I would cry. So, I think let's just look Take back. us back to the beginning. You yeah, know, not even, like, before I start talking about me, I mean, look at other doctors. Look at Andrew Wakefield. You know, the ultimate quack doctor. Look what happened to him. Mm. You know, he got his name plastered over all the papers, quack, anti-vaxxer, went to court, went to try, you know, high court, whatever, couldn't pay the fees and the bills, got struck off, had his paper rescinded along with all the other co-authors, um, ended up with a divorce, lost everything, moved to America, now as a film producer. Sorry to interrupt this podcast. Why don't you come and sign up to my newsletter at phillyjlay.com where we can keep connected and we can talk about lots of things going on in the world. You will also get my free manifestation meditation so you can become a shit-hot manifester too. Don't forget to like, subscribe and share. And turn your notifications on so you never miss an episode. Thank you. Right, I mean that, 
For what? And what did he actually even do? Uh, what he said was there's an association with the MMR vaccine and, you know, problems with GI upsets in children and potential developmental issues. And all he advocated was that instead of having an MMR, we should have three single vaccine shots. Mm. So as an anti-vaxxer, he was pretty shit. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know he was pretty crap. Yeah. As an anti-vaxxer. Well, know. no, he also asked that more research was done. He did, it. he did. But he didn't say we should stop vaccines. He didn't question all... No, I'm, talking no. about, I'm talking about at the time. He didn't say, let's stop, you know, we shouldn't be vaccinated. He just simply said, maybe, maybe before we carry on rolling out this MMR, we should go back to just doing three individual shots, precautionary principle. Now, just think about that. That's all he recommended. And then what happened after that was a complete and utter shit show. Yeah. And, you know, editors were flying, you know, you know, articles at him, attacking him. Medical journals were attacking him. The whole uh, the whole weight of the establishment came down on him and crushed him. Well, we've seen this happen to other doctors as well. You know, it happened to Dr. Sam White. It happened. Uh, Dr. Sarah Myhill has been, at the you know, the receiving end of the blows from the General yeah. Medical Council. It's it's really hard for a doctor to question anything within the system, isn't it? 100%. So Sam White, David Cartland, Sarah Myhill, Jane Donahan In yep. Ireland, you've got Jerry Waters. You've got Anne McCloskey. You know... Over here, you've got Mohammed Adil. It's very simple. If you go against the government narrative, if you go against Big Pharma, you're in trouble. And the problem that we are now facing is, in this country, the medical regulatory bodies are simply an arm of the government. Okay, The GMC is an arm of the government. No matter what they say about it being independent, no, it's not. They've got a privy council. Privy council is part of the government. Um, they've got rotating doors. You know, where people are coming in and out. And the, the GMC is essentially a civil service kind of run thing. The idea that it's a bunch of doctors running and looking after doctors is nonsense. It's mainly civil servants and those kind of people. Um, and their job isn't, I'm afraid, to ensure patient safety. I think it's mainly to ensure government policy. And they look after big pharma's interests. Okay, so it's really that simple. And the NHS comes across as a really nice fluffy organization, but the problem is it's a centralized structure. And centralized st structures inevitably become very, very corrupt, are easily corruptible, um, and are just not not healthy as an organization for the, the staff within it or the people they're trying to treat. So you've now got the centralization of healthcare, diktats, policies, nice guidelines, you name it, protocols, all coming down from above from a few people who can be easily influenced um, have conflicts of interest and then they dictate to thousands of staff members what to be doing um, to their patients so the idea of individualized patient care now has kind of gone out the window because if you're not following the guideline even though I might think actually this drug might not be in your best interest because I'm not following the guideline I can get into trouble and why oh that's what happened to Dr. Sarah Myhill that's what happened to Sarah Myhill and that's what happened to Jerry Waters so Jerry Waters goes do you know what? I don't, I don't know if I want to be injecting a, an experimental substance to my, um, my patients. So as an, I'm a conscientious objector to these mRNA jabs. And because of that, he was reported, he, he was com complained about and referred to the medical council in Ireland and then investigated and he's still suspended and still being investigated years on. And, and 
part of it is also the process. The process is the punishment. So take Sarah Myhill, for example. She's been suspended for 12 months. She's been trying to leave the GMC for mm. over two years. She doesn't want anything to do with it. She doesn't want to pa practice like that anymore. She wants to practice functional medicine outside the jurisdiction of the GMC, but they won't let her go. They've said, no, nope, you're suspended. And you know what? We'll hold another tribunal in hearing 12 months time. And guess what? They'll go through the whole shabam again. And just like last time, her name will be dragged through the mud. You just need to Google Sarah Myhill and it's in the Daily Mail. Her face is out there and, you know, anti-vaxxer, horse dewormer. You can look at yeah, literally, yeah, no. you know, and, you know, quack doctor. And the whole point is, and again, like if you look at Jane Donahan, same of her. She tried for six years to leave the GMC. She didn't pay. She didn't attend any of the meetings. And eventually they struck her off. And, you know, she said, I'm jubilant. And they went, GP, disgraced GP, you know, struck off, jubilant at being struck off. And they picked this, you know, contorted picture of her where she's like doing this. And they actually took a screenshot from a video. They went through a whole video, found a picture where she's doing this, and then plastered that on the Daily Mail. I mean, just think about that. And, you know, all of us make very, you know, if we're very, if we have, you know, a lot of emotion and expressions like me, we can, we can all find a screenshot where it isn't very flattering. And the whole point of that was the Daily Mail was picking an unflattering picture to make her look like a witch, to make her look like a bat crazy, sh batshit crazy person, and say, look, see, this is a batshit crazy person, dangerous doctor, total quack, this is what happens. And, the, and, and it's not just a punishment to the individual, it's also a warning to all the other doctors out there. Yes. You know, you dare to step out of line, we're coming for you, we're going to disgrace you, shame you. Well, it has to be said, they do a very good job of that. And uh, <laughs> you've been on the receiving end of that uh, for the last uh, year, 12, months, 12 yeah. months. Yep, they've given you a really hard time. And can you just, I, I want to go further back into your story in a bit, but where are you now? You have been stopped from working just about anywhere in the country, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so tell us, when you were at school, when you decided that you wanted to be a GP, you didn't know for one second, or you're a doctor, you didn't know for one second that you were going to be indoctrinated. To, and that's what you are, aren't you? From the moment you start that process. Yeah. And you wanted to go and help people. You know, as I, I believe virtually all doctors do. I think there are very few doctors that go in it for, you know, bad thoughts like I can kill loads of people. Um, that's the politicians that do that. Mm -hmm. uh, but you went to medical school. Tell us about your qualifications, your training uh, and your journey a little bit. Take us on that journey. Okay. So I think um, the indoctrination actually starts earlier. I think it starts at school. Yeah. And I think the indoctrination has got worse. So... I went to school in the 80s and, you know, I think we we're still being indoctrinated at that point, but it's a hell of a lot worse now. Mm. You know, now the children are being taught that, you know, we're killing the planet, they're killing the planet, you know, they're killing granny, they don't wear a mask, you know, they might be in the wrong body. So all the indoctrination is starting uh, at school. And when I went into med school, I mean, yeah, I just was fascinated by science. I loved biology and dissection. I loved you know, just trying to understand how we worked. And I wanted to get into med school and do surgery. I had done a work experience placement and ended up quite by accident in an ENT operating theater. And it was amazing, it was fascinating. It was like a completely different world, never seen anything like this as a little kid. 
you know, the, the lights, the machines, the scalpels, the blood. I was like, oh, wow, what the <laughs> I can't hell? think of anything worse, personally. But, but, just, yeah. but this is what I mean. Like, yeah, no. my, I was absolutely fascinated. You know, like, I remember the professor asking me to scrub up. And he, we had all these visiting doctors from around the world, you know, little United Colors, a Benetton type thing, you know, Asian, and African, <laughs> Middle Eastern, Arab, Indian, you know. They all just lined up watching this professor operate. And he told his assistant to scrub out so I could scrub in, this little kid from high school. And um, and I, that was even an accident because the thing is, when I started the work experience, I apparently, I, f I failed my, my practice medical school interview. So we had to do a medical school interview, then apply to be, go to... Um, work experience in, in, as a doctor so I, I failed that so I was put in as a nurse so I went to the ENT department and the nurse said right here's a penny and go in the sluice and start cleaning these in instruments that were coated in wax and you know the moment the nurse left I was like frack this and I took off the penny and I went for a walk around the department so I want to I be a <laughs> doctor i don't want to be like freaking this so i saw this guy there's an open door he was wearing a bow tie he had his feet on the table you know talking into a dictaphone i knocked on the door he went yes and i said hi i wonder if you can help me he went well it depends what it is and i said well i want to do work experience and i, and I want to be a doctor but i think there's been a mistake because i'm i'm cleaning instruments ear instruments with wax in them and that's not what i want to do and at this, he put down his dictaphone, slammed his hand on the t desk and burst out laughing and said, son, you've come to the right man. I'm Professor Browning. I'm head of the ENT department. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> and he goes, come and sit in here with me. Sit in here with me. And then, we, you know, I saw the patients and he chatted with me and explained things. I didn't have a fucking clue what you're saying. Anyway, um, at lunchtime, he goes, what are you doing now? I went, I have no idea. He goes, yes, you do. You come in with me. I'm going to I'm going to have lunch with you and then I'm going to take you to theater. And I was like, okay. So we went down to the pub. He bought me lunch. Then we went to theatre and I scrubbed up. Didn't have a fucking clue what I was doing. I got taught by a nurse how to scrub up. I was the assistant. He, he got me to come in. And I'm looking down the microscope and he's giving me the suction device. I'm sucking the blood out. All these people are watching like, who the hell is this kid? <laughs> you know? How old were you? I think 17. Bloody hell. 16, 17. Oh my God. And then, um, and then... Yeah, it was really funny. The, I, I didn't know that surgeons were misters. So I was like, Dr. Browning. And oh, the next day I knew this, this, you know, typical sister, you know, old-fashioned sister, slapped my hands like, <laughs> hard. Like, I mean hard, like bang. I was like, I was like whoa. <laughs> she goes, that's mister to you. And at this point, my head started spinning because I'm like, he's a professor, he's a mister, and he's not a doctor? What the frack? Like, I didn't know misters were, surgeons were misters at that point. I was so confused. I'd actually forgotten. Yeah, no, yeah. Right. And I was like, <laughs> and I was like, man, that's a hard slap. Like, she's just like glaring at me. Everyone's looking at me like, how dare you? Don't you know you're in front of God right now? It's like, I don't have a clue, right? And at the, and then I was looking down this microscope. He was like, suck the blood. So I'm like, <laughs> sucking the blood. And then he goes, what do you think of this? Um, what, what you can see. And I was like, looking down, I went, it's very messy. It's like having a kid there in <laughs> everybody went quiet all you could hear was a beep <laughs> beep <laughs> beep and then and then professor browning goes son son right see see what see all that blood there i went yes he went that's the paint i'm like and he goes you know what you can see in front of you that surgical field 
I don't have a clue what you meant. He went, that's my canvas. And see the scalpel in my hand? It's my paintbrush. And um, what you're witnessing right now is a masterpiece. And as for me, I'm Michelangelo. And everybody erupted in laughter and started bursting out laughing and ha ha. And I was just sitting there going, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> what, is what is this? Who is this not professor? Not just that. Who's Michelangelo? Who's <laughs> <laughs> Michelangelo? So I was just very, very confused. But anyway, I was, nonetheless, you can tell it made a big impression on me. Yeah. And I was quite inspired by it. And the whole week went by and we had a great time. Later on, it turned out he was... I found out he was homosexual and one of the first AIDS HIV surgeons in the UK. <laughs> oh, Ooh, interesting. Ooh, but he was nothing but delightful to me and professional. Okay. I'm just making yeah. it very clear. Yeah. He was a wonderful human being to me. He was, there was I, nothing about him. I can fault. He was wonderful and very inspiring and very motivating and saying, you can do this. You can be anything you want. If you want to be a surgeon, you, you go for it, son. The way you came into my room and said, I don't want to be doing this. You just keep having that attitude and you'll be fine. It's kind of what you've done with the podcast, isn't it, love? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so then basically, yeah, I went into med school and um, I didn't feel like I belonged there because I'm from this working class background. Everyone's very posh, you know, well to do. And I, I'm not. Um, but I, you know, I took to it like fish to water I really enjoyed anatomy dissection I loved I loved being a medical student I thought it was just so much fun um and but I didn't understand certain things so we would learn anatomy which I was fascinated by physiology and you know looking at the cells it was all fascinating but then far too often it would be like we don't know why you get this disease we don't know what the cause is we don't know what the cause is it was always like we don't know we don't know but you know what? Here's the tablet. Here's the pill. Here's the surgery. And so I always felt something in the back of my head didn't quite fit. Like, why don't we know what causes things? Why is it just a mystery why you get rheumatoid arthritis or psoriatic or autoimmune or what IBS? Like, no one's got a good reason. And it just seems weird to me. And everything's a tablet. And yeah. And, and it's always about blocking some pathway, blocking some hormonal receptor, whatever. And then you're, then you're thinking, but those receptors and hormones are there for a reason. And if you're blocking them, how's that working? And what else are you blocking? And then what else are you blocking? So these things were always in the back of my head. And when I would go around the medical wardrobes, I just didn't buy into it. It's like, oh, you know what? Mm, give 1.25 milligrams a day. Mm, oh, that one's a bit too much. Um, let's reduce it by a half. And it just seemed like they're just making it up and it was just side effects. And, to, and I never thought you were really fixing things. And I really liked surgery because it was about, I mean, like, like orthopedic, look, it's either broken or it's not. <laughs> yeah, so clarify here, you're an orthopedic surgeon. I'm an orthopedic surgeon. And even that's accidental. <laughs> There's a lot of accidents in your life. <laughs> So I wanted to be a general surgeon um, because I love surgery and I was watching ER and it was all bent in and I just thought that's what surgery was all about. I wanted to be a, and I didn't like orthopedic surgery that I'd done. I'd done a, like a two week, three week placement. And I'll be honest with you, the registrar in orthopedics was an absolute dick. So I was one of seven people, the other six were girls in this group of med students. 
And There's nothing wrong with that, love. <laughs> no, 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 no. You'll understand in a second why. So this guy, this registrar, would make it his job to take the piss out of me to show off in front of these girls. That's what it was always about. He was always taking the piss out of me. He was a dick, basically. Okay. So my first impression of an orthopedic surgeon wasn't very good. No. I just thought, this guy's a wanker. <laughs> and he was just, you know, just not a nice person. And then I saw the boss, and he was just like a, a bigger version of him. He was the same. You know, it is an industry that has a lot of egos in it, Just isn't it? too much of a lad. Too much in that in that era, it was too much tits and bums and this and that and oh, we, you know, you know, I, I kid you not, like why why we admitted this young girl? Oh, she's very attractive, sir. And you, you <gasps> I kid you not, I kid you not, you know, and and they would go around the wardrobe and see this attractive girl and then discharge her. I am not kidding. No, no, yeah. So fuck, know, I had no, I had no idea. No, there's, there's some things I will never say, but yeah, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, my first impression of orthopedics was it's a bit of a lads thing. I'm not a lad, and you know this guy's a dick taking the piss out of me in front of these girls trying to show off and flirt in front of them, trying to impress them. And you know what? Whatever. What a joker. And then when I did general surgery, the, they were a little bit more down to earth, and you know it was about emergencies. And actually, the the registrar was a girl, female, and she was wonderful, and she taught me how to do an operation. As a medical student, I cut out a sebaceous cyst. She was amazing. She told me how to hold the knife, cut through the skin. It's a lot thicker than you think, and don't scratch. Purposeful movement. I went, okay, you know, cut with the belly of the knife. You know, I remember everything she told me. So she made a really good impression on me, and I thought surgery was great, and I wanted to be a general surgeon and everything. Anyway, when I, when I finished my medical training, you had to work um, with a professorial team in medicine and cardiology and surgery or whatever if you wanted to advance your career. If you didn't want work for a professor, the chance of you getting on a rotation was less likely because professors carried weight, the references were bigger. Anyway, for whatever reason, I couldn't get any prof professorial surgical job, right? None of them wanted me. All my applications were rejected. So the only professor left in town was one David Hamlin, Professor David Hamlin in orthopedics. And um, I didn't want to do orthopedics, but he was a professor. And he's a professor of surgery, orthopedic surgery. And if I do well, it will carry weight and get me onto the basic surgical training program. So I went to see him and he went, and in those days, I don't know why it wasn't, orthopedics wasn't that popular. And, he was, and there were vacancies. And I was like, hi, I'm here to, for the job. And he was like, and it was very old fashioned. You took your CV, you sat with the boss. Now it's all centralized. You never get to meet the boss. It's ranked and this and that and anonymized. And, and, you know, but in those days, it was just old-fashioned. You went, knocked on the door, handed in your reference. And so he goes, what, what makes you want to do orthopedics? And I went, <laughs> I don't. I don't. <laughs> oh, you, did? you said that? <laughs> yeah, I said, I, but I don't. He said, excuse me? I, I think I heard you say you don't. I said, yeah, no, I don't. He went, then why are you here? I went, because I need to work for a professor to get on the basic surgical training program. And you're the only professor who's got a vacancy. So I'm hoping I'll be able to work with you and impress you and then get on the basic surgical program and become a general surgeon. He also put his pen down and went, oh my God, you've come to see me and you don't even want to do orthopedics. I went, I'm really sorry. He went, oh, well, well son, thank you for your honesty. <laughs> and I went, okay. <laughs> like, why would I lie? It's just the truth. He went, right, we'll make a deal. I you will come and work with me and every Thursday you will come to theatre and be my assistant. And by the end of the year, son, I'll change you to an orthopod. And he winked. 
Now, I thought that was a great fracking deal yeah. because I was like, yeah, right. In my dreams, will I become an orthopedic surgeon? But awesome that you're going to take me on. <laughs> <laughs> so I went, great, and shook his hand and got the job. Oh, wow. But then I worked with him and his registrar and his SHO. And unlike the other lads in the department, because they were also lads, the two guys that I worked with were great. And they were decent and they were nice and they were wonderful role models. And I got sold. I was like, I want to be an orthopedic surgeon. And I loved the fact things were broken or not. And you use your hands and drills and delicate and everything. So that's how my career started. So anyway, I did basic surgical training very, very quickly. Um, I was bullied. There was a guy in the air who didn't like me. For a year, my life was hell. He used to boast about how he would be bullying me. And I hated it. I couldn't get a job in Glasgow. Couldn't get a job anywhere in Scotland. And the next thing I knew... I got an interview in London at the Royal National Orthopaedic Hospital. And there's all these young lads there. It was all just boys at the time. Always signet names, double barrel names, very well to do, public school, not public boy, not a, a you know, state school like me. And um, yeah, I just looked at them and went, oh shit, this is the competition, I'm screwed. But anyway, I got, I got called in straight away. I was like, oh God damn it. I walk in, oh, there's like two professors, two other consultants, HR staff, and the first thing, the professor asked me was, why should we give you the job here? You know, there's a lot of very clever boys next door. What's special about you? I went, it's not what's special about me, it's what's special about this hospital. It's the Royal National Orthopaedic Hospital. And the professor and everybody stopped me. Yeah, we kind of know that. We work here. I went, no, but the key word is national. If it's going to be truly national, it has to have someone from Scotland, England, Wales, everywhere. All those guys are English. I'm the only Scottish guy here. <laughs> and they all just <laughs> looked at me <laughs> burst out laughing and went fine you've got the job off you go and that was it and that was it that was it so I then walk out and, and you pass the room where all the guys are and they're all looking at me and I'm like I got it I got it <laughs> and they're like who the hell is this guy <laughs> he just walks in walks out and you know you could smell the sweat in that room and the fear and the anxiety and the pressure. I was like, happy days. <laughs> I just walked it's out. mine. It's mine. It's mine. And and that was it. Anyway, so it was hard one the consultancy, getting the consultant job. Again, nobody wanted me in London, and it was apparently because I was too much of a threat. One of the consultants said to me, "Ahmed, you're not going to get a job around here because you're too much of a threat." I went, "What do you mean by that? I'm a I'm a junior doctor." No, no, no. We all look ahead and see whether you're going to be a threat to the system or our private practice you're a very good surgeon you're very charismatic you're very funny people people love you if you come into a department the other foot and ankle surgeon because i wanted to do foot and ankle surgery they'll be threatened by you they'll be threatened that you're going to take away the private practice so they'll only appoint someone who's not going to be a threat someone who's a nervous surgeon someone who doesn't have confidence someone who's not very good They'll give someone, I was like, but surely it's all about meritocracy. I've been brought up thinking that you work hard, you study, and you do well. And he went, hey, no, it doesn't work like that. It's politics, it's money. And that was an eye-opener for me. I was like, you are joking. It's an eye-opener for me because you think that they would actually be just really looking for the best people, you know. The medical profession kind of go on about how great yeah. they are. They do like to bang their own drum. Yeah, uh, as we know. Uh, no, it's about control. It's about power. 
who's going to consolidate, be head of the department. You bring in your own boys and girls who'll be obedient, who'll play ball, who'll respect you because you brought them in. Because, you know, mm. that you'll always be indebted to them. And I was too much of a free thinker. I was never an ass licker. I never sucked up to anyone. And I think people knew that. And they knew I would never be one to be controlled. And as a result, I never got any offers. I never even got any interviews in London. So I would apply and I wouldn't get an interview. But you went on to become a, a highly successful orthopaedic surgeon. Yeah, by accident. <laughs> There's a lot of the accidental doctor. <laughs> yeah. So basically, I got an interview at High Wycombe and Stoke Mandeville Hospital. Out of region. I've never worked there, not trained there. It's an Oxford kind of place. And they didn't know me. They didn't know me from Adam. at all, from Adam. And what I was, was cannon fodder. They needed, you know, number of people to for the interview to make it a legitimate application and process. But they had a boy that they wanted to get in. Um, but the problem is, once you give someone an interview, it's, very, it's a bit of an open playing field because you, you have an independent college representative on the panel making sure the process is fair. Now... At this point, when I got the interview, when I finally got the interview, I was unemployed for four months. I'd finished my training, couldn't get a job, couldn't get an interview, couldn't get anything. Suddenly, I get this interview. Now, during those four months, I was actually living in Bristol um, on the floor of a one-bedroom bedsit where my other colleague was doing a fellowship. And I had nowhere to live. I had no money. So I was literally sleeping on a sleeping bag on a hard you know, fake wood floor um, for four months. And we would count our pennies. We'd go to the restaurant and we'd be like, all right, okay, so if we get this dish, I've got £5.50 and I can get this meal. And then, okay, and with the water, I'm covered. And that was literally how I was surviving. But during that those three months, I was practicing every day my interview technique. Every document, health policy, health act, regulation, nice guideline, King's Fund, you name it, any question. My colleague and I were just, my friend and I were just practicing day and night so that if I ever did get an interview, I was going to wash. You were going to be so ready for it. I was going to be so ready for it. So that's what happened. So I went to this interview and all of them looked at me like, you know, who's this guy? Because they were all the Oxford trainees. And I went in and I gave the performance of my life. And I got the job. And the college rep rang me to tell me that was the best interview performance I've ever seen. And the next day when I went to the department, the head of the department came up to me and went, well, you've clearly got the gift of the gab. You stopped us getting our boy in. Bloody hell, that's how they welcome you. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's good to know that there are independ uh, independent people on these boards. I mean... Yeah. Um, yeah, the college rep. Wow. Wow. Do you see it? Wow. Isn't this eye-opening? It is an eye opener. You weren't expecting this. No, I wasn't expecting, you this. expecting this. This is such an eye opener. See how it goes. See where it, it goes. Is such, yeah. So within, I, I am seeing exactly where it goes. So then, within a few months, I had another senior consultant walk into my room, and go, "What are you doing?" I went, "What do you mean? Why, why are you doing these parallel lists and waiting list initiatives? And um, why are you so, you know, productive? You never in the sit in the coffee room. I hear you're even mopping the floor." You know, you know, you're getting rid of your waiting list. I went, yeah, well, that's why I thought I'd been brought in to, you know, develop the financial service and treat as many people as possible and be efficient. I like efficiency. I don't want to sit in the coffee room. I, I'm, and no one's above me and no one's below me. 
I'm happy mopping the floor if it means I get an extra case done. Because nah, son, you're missing the trick here. You know, the whole point is, you know, you might you need to hold leverage over the managers. Build up a waiting list, have power over the managers, and then guess what? A lot of those patients on the waiting list will go to the private sector. And you can operate on them over there. And you make a bit of money. Oh my god. Yeah. This is how it works. Yeah. And I'm looking at him going, what the fuck? Like, what the fuck? Like, what? Like, you're a senior guy. I'm going to be looking up to you. I'm going to be, you're going to be my, like, role model. And now I've got nothing but contempt for you. Anyway. What when is, you say you were mopping the floors, by the way, presumably that was in the surgery, operating in the operating theatre, yeah, yeah, so yeah. you could get another case in. Yeah, you yeah, didn't yeah. go and just take on a fucking cleaning job at the hospital. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, because the problem is, like, look, there's so much inertia. You don't understand. The problem with the NHS is there's a lot of people there, jobs worse. It's so hard to get rid of them. They literally are walking horizontally. They're so leaning back so much and walking so slowly and they're dragging their feet because they know it's almost impossible to get rid of them. If they do the bare minimum, they're fine. They've got a job for life. Cushy number. And actually, as I found out, the harder you work, the more you get punished. Because, ah, oh, you can fit in more cases. You can do more work. You can see more patients. So you don't get rewarded for hard work. You just get more hard work, more work. So the whole incentivization in the NHS is ridiculous. You get rewarded for being inefficient and you get penalized for being innovative, creative and hardworking. So fast forward, my dad's dying of cancer and I need to like, for example, and I've been now head of the department for the few years. I got in with just one vote. Half the department hated me. They were all in the Freemasons. You know, there were just several members. I'm sure there were. Um, and so it, you don't know that. <laughs> I don't know that. But I, it, people told me they were and told me to be careful. Um, and they all worked together as a clique. And I'm just, you know, more than one person told me, be careful. They're in the Masons and this is how they work. Um, so they made life very difficult for me. At one point, you know, I even got accused of sexual misconduct. And, you know, someone came up to me and said, oh, you know what? We're going to have to investigate you for sexual misconduct. I said, what the fuck? Yeah, I'm married to a beautiful wife, got young family. I just had a daughter. I was like, what? And I was like, who? Can't tell you. It's anonymous. What's the complaint? Can't tell you. Not right now. We need to do an investigation. And while we're doing it, you know, Oxford has said to suspend you. But we're going to keep you working. But you're not going to be able to allow to go on the ward without a chaperone. You can't have a female trainee. You need this. You need that. All these stipulations. And the moment I walked out that room, practically everybody in the hospital knew that I was being investigated, you know, sexual misconduct, so much for my privacy and anonymity and protection. You know, it was clear that they were trying to smear my name. And in the end, they said there was no sexual misconduct. So apparently I asked in front of 20 people in a orthopedic meeting, in the morning meetings, I asked one of the, the junior doctors to get up to demonstrate how you would reduce a fracture. I said, can I just show, can I have a look at your hand? And she stood up and I manipulated. Apparently, I didn't get proper consent from her. That was it. But wow. that was actually, for a long time, that was actually sexual misconduct, inappropriately touching a trainee in front of 
Oh my god! Everybody in front of everybody. It's not like some, you know, weird thing in in a room on my own. No, in a trauma meeting with everyone around me. Apparently, I touched someone inappropriately by demonstrating how to reduce a fracture. But the the the, the job was done because you know everybody would be coming up to me going, Ahmed, what what is going on here? What have you been accused of? This is ridiculous. I can't believe it's you. They, you would never do it. I was like, no, it's not me. It's like it's, it's bullshit. But this is how it works, you see. If you are dangerous or you are a problem, then they want to discredit you. They want to smear you. They want to tarnish your reputation. This is what I learned. This is how it works. Anyway, well, so they let me off. They let me off. all fields, you know. 100%. I mean. So they let me off and said, you need to have like some counseling sessions and, you know, as a way of showing that you've learned your lesson and, you know, boundaries and all that kind of bullshit um and at this point i was like miserable i found it very stressful working in the nhs more and more they were being draconian telling me what i couldn't do what i could do how i was meant to treat my patients working as a clinical director i realized what was happening behind the scenes it's nothing to do with patients it's all about money it's wholly corrupt you get these and um, people from um, um, management agencies coming in, being paid a thousand pounds a day, they they make stupid decisions um, to save money. They charge a fortune for it. Um, after six months, they realize what a mistake it was. Then they get another management team in, charge them a thousand pounds a day to then bring back things exactly where they were before. I mean, I mean that's how it works, and it's just a gravy train. It's a gravy train for all these agencies, companies making all the contracts go out to people they know. Funny handshakes, wink, winks. You know, it's and you know, and it's just and the idea that there's not enough money is a joke. There's plenty of money. There's plenty of money. The money's going the wrong place. Anyway, so I wasn't very happy, and I was getting very stressed. And give me an example. My dad was dying of cancer. He had an emergency. I needed to go and see the the doctor because they were deciding whether to do surgery or radiotherapy or what. And he said you need to be here. And I told my hospital look i can't afford to work late today and what was happening was my clinics were always overbooked so instead of finishing at five i was routinely finishing at half seven in the evening okay and i would keep saying to them this is wrong you, you know you need to cap my clinic so you're overbooking me and nothing would happen they would just keep piling on the pressure the pressure and i and it's just and i look at other doctors and the consultants working there and it's funny how they were protected from that and they never had that it was almost like deliberate how I was overwhelmed with work and stress. So I, I emailed all the managers. I rang them. No one answered. I contacted my head of the department then. And I said, look, I need to leave on time today because it's my dad. And I'm going to finish at five. And if I'm sorry, the clinic is overbooked. Last week I was on holiday. And instead of canceling that clinic and spreading the patients out, you've just basically dumped all of last week's today. So my clinic is double what it should be. I'm not going to finish till nine that's ridiculous get rid of these patients and move them and i'm going to leave at five because i need to go to the hospital see my dad you know and in london and i'm out in the sticks so i leave at five and they didn't cancel the patients and my junior was working till eight o'clock at night and apparently there were some complaints anyway i'm glad i went i had a conversation with the dad my dad's doctor he got the treatment blah blah, blah and he was able to walk again for a few more months um because the tumor was in the spine Anyway, but the next day when I went to work, first thing at half past eight, I get a phone call from the medical director saying, um, we've had complaints about you and we're launching an investigation. And I'm like... It's pretty relentless. It was it? it was relentless, you know? And I'm like, so hold on one second. I've worked as a consultant for seven years. I've worked so hard. I've worked late every day for those seven years 
for no extra pay. The one time I want to go home on time for my dad, you're launching an investigation. Fuck you. So I rang the chief executive. I said, you know, I'm going to resign if this isn't dropped. And he went, are they doing that? And he was a good chief executive. I'm so sorry, Ahmed. I'm so sorry. And he spoke to the medical director and they dropped it. But that was a lesson to me that I, I can't stay here anymore. No. I, they, they don't want me and I don't want them. Um, and yeah, it just it just gets worse. So and and then one of the consultants uh, and one of the managers also came up to me and said, um, "Ahmed, it's come to our notice that you're leaving ten minutes early every operating theater, ten fifteen minutes early." Uh, what's wrong with that? That you're not utilizing your theater time properly, and you know we're either gonna we, we're gonna do a little investigation because that's a breach of contract, and you know blah blah blah, and you know. You could be doing more work and blah, blah. And I was like, hold on one sec, hold on one sec. How many operations did I do last year? Oh, something like 600. How many did the other surgeon do? The other foot and surgeon? I was like, oh, 300 something. I was like, hold on. So I've done almost double of the other person. Yeah. I was like, that guy sits in the coffee room. I'm never in the coffee room. I'm up in the floor. I did double the cases. If I finished 10, 15 minutes early, I think I fucking deserved it. And I then just, it was like, and then it was like, yeah, but we know you're fast. That surgeon can't operate as fast as you. They're utilizing their theater time appropriately. You're not. Do you see how this all works? Yeah. So, I mean, listen, look, the, your listeners are going to be getting bored. We need to move on to what's happening now. We do. But we do. what I'm trying to say is it got to a point where I was like, fuck this shit. So I resigned and I left and I didn't leave so I could work seven days a week in the private sector. Unless I could work two and a half days in the private sector, turn my health around, because I had diabetes, hypertension, I was overweight, I was stressed as hell. And you know what? The moment I resigned, a weight lifted off me. And I earned less straight away, significantly less, but I was like, I don't give a shit. You know what? I'm going to give up on the dream. You've been to my house. It's not like your house. It's a tiny little cottage. Yeah? And, you know, I don't want the big dream because I can't afford the mortgage and I don't want to be treating people and working every day and night and operating on every patient just to pay the mortgage. I wanted to live within my means. So, you know, it's all about that. Kids go to state school. We live a simple life. We get our shit together. We be healthy and we be happy. And that's it. And that was my life then. And then 2020 happened. Kind of. There's a bit something happened before that. Brexit. How did that affect you? So being a troublemaker. <laughs> Surely not. <laughs> I'm always looking for trouble. <laughs> so not being content now with my lovely little life. One day I was watching the news and they were talking about the Brexit vote and how it's a disaster and how all these old white racist people in the north, unemployed degenerates had voted in Brexit. I'm looking at the mirror going, I have an identity crisis because I identify with those people. I've won- I wanted Brexit. Did you? Yeah. I wanted, I never got to vote because he- my dad's health reasons. I never got a chance to vote. But, and I also actually, can I be honest with you, didn't even think my vote would matter because never up until that point has my vote ever mattered. But I desperately wanted Brexit because the EU is fundamentally undemocratic and an evil organization. And people have no idea how evil. And it's one stepping stone towards the one world government. Okay, but 
the media does a great job of portraying this beautiful blue flag and golden stars and it's all fluffy and nice and oh I'm a liberal EU person and because I'm an EU person I'm a nice person I'm enlightened and you know why wouldn't we want to be with our EU European friends and neighbours no you got it wrong straight away I love Europe I love individual European sovereign nations I don't want a homogenous one European state bureaucratic, undemocratic bullshit organisation, which it is. Well, when you look at the corruption in the in the UK government, for example, and uh, and we're going to cover this a little bit more because I want to talk about um, how much money was spent on PPE and um, yeah, we'll come medazzle, to that. and let's let's just we'll do... come to that. But but the thing is, it's hard enough to control our politicians in London. I know. So when you're doing, how are you going to do in, Brex- in Brussels? Good luck to you. Good luck to you. Your little voice will be diluted even more. You know, we have one voice out of 70 million here. Good luck. And when it's out of 350 million. And you've got Germans and French people competing against you. and this, So we get drowned out. Listen, we're in an era, whether it's finance, politics, or healthcare, or social, or cultural, where it is now between the individual or the collective. And I'm telling you right now, collectivism is evil. This is the way to totalitarianism for the greater good, etc., etc. It has to be individual, bodily autonomy, personal individualized um, patient-centered care. You know, it's all about individualism. I am about individualism. So all these things like EU, NHS, all of these things are centralized structures, collectivism. This is fundamentally what we're facing, okay? And one side is the light, and one side is the dark. And if you don't get it, you better get it quick. So anyway, moving on. So I'm now involved in the Brexit part. I go down to the Brexit HQ and say, I want to sign up as a parliamentary candidate. You know, I, I, want, to, I want to get Brexit done. This is bullshit. I can see what's happening. The fear porn. Oh, we're going to run out of drugs. We're going to run out of medicine. You know, Carney was saying, oh, the economy's going to tank. I was like, you know what, if you will something, it's going to happen. We're already selling it like it's going to be an abject failure. This has been the biggest political movement in, in, in the history of this country. We want Brexit, we're going to get it. So if everybody thinks people who want Brexit are old, white, stupid, racist people, I'm going to prove to them they're not. Anyway, what I didn't realize is that my colleagues who already don't like me now had an even bigger reason to hate me. So all the doctors who are working in the private hospital still work in the NHS. They still hated me. Okay, so I'm in the private hospital hardly talking to anyone because they're all scum. Right? They're all I know what they're all about. And it's not true medicine. And um, but now they're literally saying, here comes the racist doctor. Here comes it and all the GPs were aware now that I'm supporting Brexit. Everybody stopped referring patients to me. Bloody hell, it's just... Yeah, so even though I might be the best foot and ankle surgeon in Buckinghamshire, in Buckinghamshire, it doesn't matter. You know, we're going to send, you know, because... I mean, maybe you can see it from their point of view. This guy's lost the plot. He's dangerous. He's crazy. He's joined Nigel Farage's party. He's a racist idiot. Why the hell am I going to send my patient to him? Okay, maybe maybe, maybe that's reason. Okay, I don't know. But everybody stopped sending me patients. So my private practice dropped by 50%. Now I was barely making ends meet because I've got significant overheads. You've got a secretary, indemnity insurance, room rental, typing costs, billing costs. You know what it's like running a business. Um, 
And, you know, you need to be making about 60,000 just to break even. That's what the costs yeah. are like. Yeah. So, you know, when you then make 100,000, so people think, oh, you're making 100,000, you must be so rich. Yeah, 60,000 of that has gone to, you know, expenses. Now I've got 40 grand, 45 grand and pay tax and that, you know, make home maybe 30 grand if I'm lucky. So, you know, you might think 100 grand sounds like a lot. It's not when you think about all the costs. So when you then have your practice cut by a half, you're screwed. Yeah. Um. So now, why is this relevant to COVID? Mm. So now if you remember, all that Brexit shit ended at the end of 2019. Nigel Farage stood me down. They did a deal with Boris Johnson. And I think Nigel Farage sold us down the river. I think he was a Pied Piper. I think the whole Brexit party was a f vehicle to dissipate the anger of the nation and fizzle it away so that Brexit would never actually happen. That's where I've come to the conclusion. Um, now, why is this relevant? Because by the end of 2019, I was mentally broken. I'd been abused on the streets every Saturday when I was canvassing. You're racist, you're this. You know, in the towns and villages where I live and work, you know, patients would be coming by and go, Ahmed, is that you in the Brexit? Are you feeling all right? And I'd be like, and then I'd have to explain. I'd be like, because it was a very soft, conservative, liberal, and it's now a liberal seat, you know, Cheshire and Amersham. Yeah. Um, and they're all liberal, lefty, wokey idiots, you know. They all think they know what's best. They all read The Guardian, and they've all got that intellectual and cultural arrogance, like we know better, okay? And I don't like that. And that's my working class roots. I'm telling you right now, we see the bullshit a lot more than these professionals and educated types. You know, we just do, we, we just know. We know when there's bullshit going on. But by the early 2020, I was broke. I was mentally really stressed. And I was like, how am I going to pick myself up from this? Because I don't have a full-time job. I don't have, I need to, and this is my private practice. I need to build myself up. Where the fuck am I going? And then the lockdown shit happened. And the virus is coming. And so I fell for it. Because mentally, in a very bad place, I fell for it. And I was the idiot who got the mask before masks were even a thing. I was walking around Waitrose with a mask and everybody's looking at me going, who the fuck is it? And I was like, you go, you don't know. There's a pandemic coming. Um, so for about three weeks, I lost the plot. I fucking lost the plot. And then lockdown happened. And within three days, I was like, this is bullshit. It was like a crystal clear moment. Within yeah. three days, I was like, Hold on. And I remember when, because I was listening to the news, and it was like, people should stay at home practically until they're about to die, and then they can go to hospital, and then they'll get ventilated. I was like, this goes against everything I've been taught in med school. Early treatment is always the way, hydration, antibiotics, because post-viral pneumonia, and it's not the, never the virus that gets you, it's a post-viral pneumonia that kills people off. So you need antibiotics, you need early treatment, you need vitamin D, you need... Sun and when they said indoors, don't go outside, I was like, but you need sunlight, you need nature, because in, in the intervening years, I turned my health around. I, I got rid of my diabetes, I got rid of my hypertension. How? I got into, into intermittent fasting... You know, I got into... I'm a big fan of fasting. I do it. Yeah, one meal a day. Yeah. Sunlight, nature, exercise, yep. companionship, grounding. grounding, love. So all these things that we need, they were telling us not to do. 
So that's why I woke up literally within three days. But I am guilty of falling for the bullshit. But I'm explaining why. Why you felt because I was mentally fragile. Yeah, I was not. And, a... and you know, it was, it was the hugest propaganda job I think most probably in the history of mankind. I mean, it was extraordinary. I. I had always had concerns that they were going to do something like this. So for for me, when we went into lockdown, um, my girls go, we're going into lockdown. I go, don't be so bloody stupid. Of course you're not. Uh, I'm not letting you lock down. And, you know, I, I not for one moment was I concerned about this virus. But I've met people. Uh, I, I spoke to somebody quite recently, actually, and he was saying... Um, he contacted me uh, for some EFT tapping uh, for his wife and she'd been pregnant in 2020 and had a baby. He wasn't allowed to attend the birth. She was so frightened of COVID. She was so frightened of dying that she wouldn't even touch a tree. Um, and her, her husband said, come on, let's just go and um, hug a tree and we'll feel better. And she would scream hysterically that she would get COVID off a tree. The mental propaganda of a government that can put people into that state of fear, with fear, as we all know, and I say it many, many times, the biggest suppressor of the immune system. What the fuck was going on there? It was awful. It was relentless. And now we know it was spy B, psychological warfare, behavioral unit, nudge team. And, you know, it was... It was evil. You know, our government waged war on us. So in that year of 2020, I was now unemployed because I was unable to work at the hospital. Remember, as a private consultant, I don't work for the hospital. I pay them. I have room rentals and everything. Uh, but I wasn't allowed in. And they were doing NHS contract work. Now, in the meantime, I'm contacting my colleagues that I got on well with in the hospitals and saying, what's going on? They're like, oh, we're, in the, we're having a barbecue. You know, we don't work anymore. We've been told to cancel all the lists. It's fucking great. Getting paid full time. This is a dream. And I'm like, aren't you upset? Like, about all the patients that you're waiting list? And no. And they don't care. To to survive in the NHS, you either have burnout and stressed because you care. Or you learn not to care. It's a coping mechanism. It's not that these people are bad or cold or evil. To survive, you either get destroyed mentally or you just you just don't care anymore. You just I can see why that happens because you know, it's, the, it's the stress self preservation. It, it is self preservation. I do I do wonder if twenty years down the line we'll have a doctor left in the UK, whether people will continue to put themselves through this. But I suppose we will, because there will be the people that don't care and that don't do the work and who are as lazy as shit, who are taking good money from a, an incredibly corrupt system. And the medical treatment of people, I believe, is just going to get worse. It's going to get and worse. worse. It's going to get worse. It's going to get so much worse. So I knew straight away there was something not right. And this idea that hospitals were rammed and busy and overflowing was bullshit. It wasn't the case. Well, I noticed that because um, I've got two younger daughters. I mean, they're older now, obviously, with three years down and four years down the line. But they were doing a lot of TikTok because everybody went on TikTok in 2020. Uh, and they were just showing me all these doctors and nurses 
dancing in hospitals. Now, they were off pat on their movements, you know. Yeah. And you're going, I'm sorry, I trained as a classical dancer. Do you know how long that takes for you to be yeah. that in sync? Yeah, yeah. There was something very sinister about that. And I, and I don't know. So I even had um, a doctor on my podcast and he was telling me that Amy was dead quiet. There was nothing happening. And they would then get asked, oh, should we do a TikTok dance? And he was like, no, something's wrong about that. We're meant to be in the middle of a pandemic. You want me to dance? And they're being told to do admin work and menial tasks just to stay busy. I had an NHS manager who refused to, you know, give her name. She was anonymous. He told me that, you know, she would walk down the corridors, go for any, it was all dead quiet. And a big North London teaching hospital. So, you know, something really weird was going on at that time. So, but now I'm stressed again. Why am I stressed? Because I'm not earning a penny. I haven't got massive savings. I've got rid of the nanny. I'm wondering how I'm going to pay the mortgage. We had to remortgage our house. We had to get mortgage holiday payments. Because remember, I'm now been practicing for a few years, two and a half days a week, just earning enough to pay the bills, you know, tick along, not worrying about, you know, something that's going to happen, asteroids going to come and stop me. It's going to be fine. Just live happily. But, you know, we've got savings for about four or five months and then that's it. That was a buffer. And now we're, you know, Brexit's fucked me over and now this has happened and I'm not, and I wasn't eligible for furlough and I had no salary coming in. So yes, I might be an orthopedic surgeon, but I'm just putting it into context. Yeah. I'm not, an extravagant, wealthy kind of surgeon. And I'm an ethical surgeon. So, you know, what I mean by that is I used to tell my patients, I'm a really shit businessman, I'm an ethical surgeon. So while I could operate on you, I don't recommend it. I recommend actually you give it time. I recommend you lose some weight, optimize your sleep, do some exercise, adjust your footwear, spend some money on some decent footwear and try this company out. And I'm telling you, it'll make a difference. Doc, you're amazing. Yeah, it's fantastic. I can't believe I was thinking about an operation with that other guy. I was like, yeah, you don't need an operation. You know, so I walked, I worked like that. That was my, because I wanted to treat every patient like my family member. This is also important. So I'm an ethical doctor. I'm trying to treat my patients like my family. And that's how I practice. And, you know, finally, you know, we start opening up the hospitals. I start getting back in. I start lifting myself up again and start practicing. And, um, yeah, I, you know, didn't, didn't want to do anything else, just just going on my life. I was very upset about what happened with COVID, but I thought it was kind of much over. The vaccines were coming and I was really nervous about them and worried about them and I didn't want them. And I looked into it and it was experimental and it wasn't a normal vaccine. I was even questioning vaccines at this point. And why? Because for the preceding 10 years, I kept being told as a consultant, get your flu vaccine, get your flu. And I was like, that's a fucking hard sell. Like we keep getting told we don't have any money in the NHS, but we have plenty of money for this flu vaccine, plenty of money for the promotion and the staff and the, you know, you get the notice from your GP, come on, get your flu. You try and get an appointment with your GP, you can't get it through, but they've got time to send you all these alerts and messages and tell you to come up and get your flu. It's like, it's just weird to me. And for something that didn't work, because if it weren't, why do we always have a flu season? Why do we always have bed crisis? Why do we all, you know, for yeah, something yeah. that I mean, every single January, the BBC pushed their yeah. propaganda. So, so just think about it. If it worked, we wouldn't fucking have that problem, okay? So it doesn't work. And if you look at the literature, the flu shots don't work, okay? So I was questioning vaccines as a whole by this point. And this, I've never been an anti-vaccine. I've had all the vaccines. My kids have had the vaccines, which I regret now. Um, so I'm not someone who's come to this like, oh, I'm an anti-vaxxer. No. I was just a very normie kind of guy who was just questioning, beginning to question everything. And then when the COVID vaccine, I was like, fuck this shit. But my wife, unfortunately, was really 
in the system as a general doctor saying, no, we need to get it. This is the way out of the pandemic. We need to save people. This is our duty as doctors. We, 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 can't, we need to protect our patients. And I'm like, yeah, but you take a vaccine to protect yourself. You never take it to protect anyone else. Like, if you've had the mm. vaccine, that should maybe be your shield. Like, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense to me. Like, if someone's been vaccinated and I choose not to, they shouldn't worry about me not being vaccinated because they've had it. If it's so great, they're protected. Yeah, this is what I never understood. Because I never understood it. But yeah. anyway, it got to a point where I was getting pressured by the hospitals, my colleagues, my wife. I was being called a crazy anti-vaxxer. I should go and see a psychiatrist and blah. And I, in a fit of rage, I was like, fucking hell. I'll, look, I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I'll go and get the fucking shot. And I went to the drive-thru and I went in and I was like sitting down and I was like, look, can I just ask you, you know, what is in this shot? And the guy was like, oh, you know, it's the mRNA and bang in my shoulder. And I was like, that was quick. I didn't get a chance to finish asking my questions and everything. Because even though I'd gone there, I was still torn. I was torn. I was even messaging my sister. I don't know what I'm doing. Should I have it or not? I'm going to ask them questions. And it was just done. There was no fucking informed consent. Nothing. No consent nothing. whatsoever. Nothing. So, and this is coming from someone who's done informed consent all his life. You know, I've, you know, as a surgeon, doctor, I get informed consent. You explain everything to a patient. You give them their risks, their benefits, the pros, the cons, their options. Nothing being an option. Do nothing being an option. You give them time. You ask them to come back again a second time. They're not sure. All this shit. You know, you have to do it. There's no coercion. There's no pressure. There's no incentive. There's respect for the decision. All that kind of stuff. I don't have any of that. And subsequently, I've now discovered that no one's had informed consent because no one knew what was in the product. No one knew what was in the drug. My friend Debbie Evans from UK Column wrote to the GP um, college and said, look, what's in this? And the GP secretary of the GP college wrote back saying, we didn't, we didn't know what was in these vaccines. So how can you be consenting someone if you don't even know what's in them? It's also turned out that the study, Maine's Pfizer study was flawed. They didn't talk about absolute risk they talked about relative risk reduction the manufacturing process for the experimental vials in that study were very different from the mass rollout completely different completely it should have gone through the whole regulatory process again consented there was plasmid dna it can affect your genome i mean it goes on how long does this spike protein last for where does it go in your body can you switch it off is there a toxic level is there an antidote is it, does it affect your fertility? Does it affect... I mean, like, I mean, there's lots of questions out there. We don't know. No one's had informed consent. But the fact is, I sat in that car and cried, Philly. And I'm you not know, surprised. As a kid, I was molested twice, you know, touched up by men. And on one and, and on a third occasion, I was almost kidnapped as a kid. In Govan, I was walking home from school. I was about six, seven years old. Six, actually. And um, my younger brother and older sister were there. And he, this guy picked me up to try, try and take me away. He said, I'm going to show you my puppies. Classic story. And I kicked and yelled. And my sister screamed. And my brother screamed. And he dropped me and ran away. Right? So this is the kind of shit that I've been through, right? I'm telling you, that injection was worse than any of that crap that I've been through. Because this was inside me. I couldn't get it out of me. And I promised I was never going to get a fucking shot again. And I was going to tell everybody this is wrong and it almost tore my marriage apart i'm i'm not surprised i mean it it has been a massive divide for so many people with their families i know that yep you know I, i've had my issues too um i i never for one second ever 
even contemplated it and just begged everybody I knew not to have it. But I want you just to explain, because they're, you know, um, we're not just preaching to the converted, and sometimes it feels like that. But there'll be a lot of people that are maybe new to this podcast or hopping on that don't know what the mRNA is, don't know what the spike protein is, um, and why this was actually never a vaccine. And the fact that they changed the, the World Health Organization, definition. changed the definition of vaccine in order to get this shot put through. So talk us through. So first of all, it's not messenger RNA. It's it's modified messenger mRNA. So it's mmRNA. So one of the base pairs, uridine, has been changed. So normally RNA degrades very quickly and it breaks down. They've changed it so that it doesn't break down. It doesn't degrade. Your body can't get rid of it. It's a complete artificial type of RNA. So it's modified artificial synthetic RNA. And what they've done is they've got a sequence, which is even weird. How did they got, got that gene sequence? You know, it's very weird. It was from a lab. They got a sequence and part of it is from SARS-CoV and then they added this and that. And we don't know where the sequence comes from, but they manufactured the spike protein, which is apparently the dangerous part of the coronavirus. That's if you even believe in viruses, et cetera, et cetera. And the question is, why would you even create the part of the virus that's most dangerous? Surely you would create something that's relatively inert and not harmful and use that so that your body could recognize it. But no, they decided that they're going to use a toxic part and manufacture the toxic part in your body. Your body would become a factory to produce the toxic part. That in itself is just so bizarre and nonsensical. It doesn't even make sense. And then if you look at the data now, there were patents out in 2015 and 16 what with this vaccine and the sequence. So... What's that all about? And now, actually, it's not even a FDA, CDC, Pfizer product. It's a Department of Defense, mm -hmm. bioweapons research. Um, it was all conducted by the military. It was a countermeasure. And Pfizer, and they were manufactured elsewhere. And Pfizer is just literally a building with a marketing team and a branding team. They just put the sticker on it and said, yes, yeah, our product and BioNTech and blah, blah. But other people manufactured it. It's run by the military. It's countermeasures, and it's they've got no. There's they've got immunity because it doesn't fall under the FDA jurisdiction. Even the whole idea that's under FDA and this is a sham. That's why it's an EUA, emergency use authorization. When did that ever happen? When when did that ever exist? When was that ever a thing? You know, so. You've got this fake thing, emergency use authorization. Everybody was told that the government's that you're, you know, you can't be sued. Pfizer can't be sued. No one can be sued for it. And just think about it. If well, all vaccine companies yeah, can't be sued. But I if mean, this they... is such a great product, why can't it be sued? Why can't you sue for it? Like, just think about it. But that's been a long time since. Long time. Yeah, I mean, years. Exactly. years. Yeah. Longer. <clears throat> yeah. 1986 in America yeah. with their vaccine act. I mean, the whole thing is a joke. But the thing is, I don't mind now calling it a vaccine because it sheds light on the whole vaccine industry. And the whole vaccine industry, I believe, is a scam and fraudulent. And look, look it's all about choice. If they 
develop a substance or a vaccine, whatever, and they prove, properly prove, that it is safe and effective, bullshit tagline. Um, and it's done a robust study with a true placebo arm and long-term data and safety data, and it works. Do you know what? Fine. People can take it and whatever. But the reality is no one's been given informed consent. So anyone who is pro-vaccine listening to this, tell me five ingredients in a vaccine. Just give me five names. Five things that are in a vaccine. Tell me, tell me what are adjuvants. Why do you need an adjuvant? What is aluminium doing in a vaccine? Why is mercury? What is aluminium and mercury doing? What is mercury doing in a vaccine? What are the normal physiological processes in the body that use either mercury or aluminium? How does your body naturally get rid of mercury and aluminium? What happens with aluminium and mercury in the body? What are the cytotoxic effects? What happens to your brain if you have these things in? What happens to your development if you have it? How do you get rid of it? What's the safe dose? What happens when you have multiple dosages as a kid, as a baby? Well, how does that affect you? Is there a safe dose? What happened to Mr. Aluminium, Christopher Exley, when he investigated into this? What is detergent doing in vaccines? What is dog, kidney, monkey, DNA doing in it? How many aborted fetuses were used to make vaccines? And are aborted fetuses still being used to make the manufacture vaccines? You know, there's a lot of questions there. Do you guys know the answer to this? Anyone listening who loves vaccines and thinks they're the safe and effective and the best thing since last but do you know all of this stuff? Can you answer any of this? Can you give me any study where there's a randomized study against a true placebo arm, one vaccine of another, long-term studies showing comparative groups of children? Really? Can you? So, no, and, and what I would like to say here is if you look at the graphs, and I've seen many of these graphs, if you look at the graphs of the major childhood diseases like polio, measles, all of those, they were on such a downward so, slope. So what you're talking about is Roman Bristianic, okay, and his book, Dissolving Illusions. So that podcast is coming out in a couple of weeks. Ooh. And he makes it very clear that you know what all of these diseases were on on the right track through proper sanitation clean water sewage good food nutrition refrigeration refrigeration everything was getting better on its own so this idea that you then say oh vaccines fixed everything's bullshit they all came it's, afterwards it's complete bullshit it's complete bullshit yeah I, and also i mean you have a plumber to thank more for your for, for the health than you had 100% um any Medical team. 100%. So anyway, going back to these mRNA vaccines, right? They're not safe. They're not effective. Something very crooked going on. Why is the military involved? Why did the FDA not do its proper job? Why were the governments in bed with Big Pharma, with Bill Gates, with Pfizer? What was the who playing at this? What are event 201? You know, there's so many questions to ask. What happened to informed consent? Why did why did people want mandates? So this is now coming to mandates. So I went back to my life. I wasn't really on social media. I just did Instagram because I like pictures. And, you know, I'm not politically activated now after Brexit. I just wanted a quiet life. I had enough of this shit, right? And then the mandates came along. Mm. And now they're telling me, not only do you need to have the vaccines to do your job, but in the next six to eight weeks, if you don't get your second shot and a booster and any subsequent boosters, you won't be allowed to practice. It is a medical intervention. It was, you know, it is a medical intervention um, and with no conformed consent. And so you have to actually look and put this... I think it's kind of fair to say put it on a par um, with Nuremberg. You know, the 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100
So I now found myself getting motivated again. So I reached out to all the people that I was involved with with the Brexit party and said, look, can you get me on GB News or something? So I got on GB News. So you can find me now. I'm the guy, fact check, doctor on GB News giving misinformation. And it's because I got one little bit of information wrong. And that's funny, isn't it? So I'll put my hands up and admit to getting things wrong. But, you know, 99% of what I said was right. They ignore. And the 1% where I, you know, quoted something accidentally and incorrectly, they picked up on that. So, but the thing is, I went public, I went on GB News, and I talked about informed consent. I talked about bodily autonomy and how it's important and how mandates. It's just the worst and most evil thing ever. Um, I was vocal on Instagram about it. I went on marches. Um, I went and handed in a petition at 10 Downing Street. And the next thing I know... Oh, I was there that day. The next thing I know... It was overturned. I thought, great. Guess what? Get back to life again. And that's what I did. I went back to my normal life again. I don't want I don't want to be a TV celebrity doctor. I don't want any limelight. I just want a quiet life. You've seen me. I'm a family man. Yeah. Little chickens. I just want to get get on with I my know, life. Your lovely chickens. So basically and children and, and web children. making and you yeah. do you want this kind of wholesome just simple simple, simple family life simple life and then last december 22 not last december the december before that i did a video uh, on my twitter at the blue saying do you know what we need to question these mrna jabs the biggest experiment known to mankind you know there's a lot of harms that i'm seeing a lot of my colleagues are seeing harms but are too scared to say anything Surely we need to now stop, halt, and investigate what exactly is going on. Because I was actually getting quite fed up now with the gaslighting that was going on. Mm. I'd been to one of my patients' funeral. She had turbo cancer. I was seeing patients with motor neuron disease, multiple sclerosis. You know, I shouldn't be diagnosing that as a foot and ankle surgeon. You know, things were going wrong. Like, I was seeing weird and wonderful things that I shouldn't be. My neurologist colleague in the in the hospital was seeing weird and wonderful things. And he's telling me straight up, oh, it's the vaccines. I was like, what are you doing about it? Nothing. This is what I find so extraordinary. It was even worse than that. I said, how how are things? As I walked into the room and we were swapping rooms, you know, he's leaving, I'm coming in. He went, oh, it's so busy. Business is booming. I went, well, good for you. I wish it was booming for me. Like, because um, I'm still, I'm still sanctioned. You know, these GPs haven't forgiven me for Brexit and having gone public about the mandates. So let me just fill in something for you. So my wife was trying to convince me to take the shots. And what she thought would work would get have me um, privy to a private Facebook group of something like 20,000 plus doctors. And she said, look, 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 see, you know, all these doctors, they can't all be wrong and blah, blah, blah. And it was anything but convincing. It did the exact opposite for me. So I'll give an example of someone's post on this thread. Hi, everyone. I'm a doctor, you know, who's had COVID. Um, I had a shot and I had a severe adverse reaction. Since then, I've discovered I'm pregnant, but I've been invited for a second shot and I'm a little bit nervous. I was wondering what everybody thought about this. Right. You don't need to be a doctor. You've had COVID. Yep. You fucking had COVID. <laughs> right? This is it. Herd you, immunity, immune you've systems. You had fucking COVID. <laughs> you then got a shot and had an adverse fucking reaction. You're now pregnant. 
I mean, those are three fucking good reasons not, not to have a second shot, right? It's a fucking no-brainer. I hope your audience don't mind me swearing, but... No, 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 no. Fucking hell, you know? This is something you have to swear about because this is just actually fucking insane. Insane. That you would right? even and this, ask that question. And 20,000 doctors all reading, and then suddenly you've got 600-odd comments. All the same. Why are you even questioning this? You're not becoming an anti-vaxxer now. <gasps> no. What is wrong with you? You should be so grateful. This is going to protect your pregnancy. If you get COVID again during your pregnancy, you might kill your baby. No. You are. I'm fucking for real. Then the next thing, this person goes, "Okay, everyone, I'm so sorry. I don't know why I got. I why I was doubtful. You're right. I'll go ahead and get it." Yeah. I have no words. I yeah. have no words. You know, let's go back to the 1960s and flamidamide. I can never say that. Thalidomide. Thalidomide. Say it for me. Thalidomide. Yeah. I mean, they said then that they would never inject pregnant you, you women You protect again. pregnant women. No, but just think about where did the precautionary principle go? And what was scary was there was no dissent. Like, normally you have dissent. You have varying opinions. There was no opinions. There was one uniform voice. These were all brainwashed, indoctrinated it's people. It's quite spooky, spooky, isn't it? And it was like the fucking Borg. Yeah. It's like, imagine everyone, you know the movie The Invasion of the Body Snatchers? Everyone's now a fucking alien. They might look human, but they're not human anymore. They've all, they're all fucking aliens. You're like, you, you don't know who to trust anymore. This, this... This does sound very weird. I mean, this <laughs> this does sound very weird to a lot of people. But guess what happened this, next? That doctors can be so brainwashed. Oh, no, we're so fucking stupid, it's unbelievable. So the next thing happened was, I suddenly started seeing my little video clip coming up in this Facebook thread. And do you think they were complimentary? No. No. <laughs> so, I, I mean, I just look for trouble. I just look for the shit and I want to swim in it. I mean, I don't know what my problem is. So now they're, all these doctors are calling me a quack and a dangerous misinformation and what does this fucking foot and ankle there surgeon is, know? There is no discussion here. It is just, you know, we have a COVID inquiry going on at the moment, which is a complete and utter fucking farce. You know, nothing is being addressed in this. God knows what it's costing. It's a stitch up. And, and the whole thing's a stitch up. But then if you have a look at what was spent, what was filtered by our government and government ministers, you know, Matt Hancock and, you know, the, the whole lot of them just giving contracts to their mates for millions and millions of pounds, you know, billions of, of pounds of PPE thrown into landfill. Because they ordered five years worth of PPE yeah. when they were meant to order four and months. And it's funny how all the contracts went to their friends. All of them went to their friends. So the, I said right from the beginning, the COVID inquiry would be very simple. Even before it started, I said, the outcome will be we need to do things quicker, faster, harder, longer. It's bullshit. Anyway, so now I'm on this Facebook group and I'm like, I'm, I'm up there as being a complete quack, idiot, dumb orthopod. And I'm like, these guys have lost the plot. This hasn't worked. If my wife thought it was going to convince me to take more shots, <laughs> no. Mm. I said, everyone's lost the plot. And it's very scary, Philly. 
Yeah. Imagine you've got 280,000 doctors, right? I think there's 280 doctors registered. I don't know how many are practicing, maybe 250,000, 220,000. That's still a large number of doctors, right? And then you think, how many are actually thinking like me publicly and saying something? Sam White, Mohammed Adil, David Cartland, David and Tony Hinton, and me. Where are five. the other doctors? Where are five of us? I know, I know. Five out of what? Say, let's just round it up: two hundred thousand. So, what's that percentage-wise? Let's do ma- let's do the math. I'm, I'm a bit zero point zero zero. Like, I'm, I'm not zero. very good at maths. I no. needed a tutor when I was do, in math school. So two, uh, so five divided by two hundred thousand times a hundred. It's point zero zero two five percent. That's that's that's. How many doctors are speaking up? Can you ha- can you imagine how lonely that must be? Can you imagine also how scary that must be? Because the options are that I am indeed an absolute quack, crazy, dangerous misinformation spreader, and an embarrassment to my family and my profession. Or that you've got balls. The <laughs> rest of these doctors are all fucking losing the plot. They just don't have the courage. To and say I'm anything. sorry, but both of those options aren't are not acceptable. Are not acceptable. I don't I don't want to be in that point zero zero two five percent. That's terrifying. Mm. So I'm right, but everyone else is fucking wrong. Everyone else has forgotten medical ethics. I mean, why is a private orthopedic surgeon part-time fighting the mandates? Where the fuck were the NHS doctors? You're being told you can't work. Oh, there work. was Steve... Um, oh, That's it. James. Steve James, yeah. Yeah, he's disappeared now. That was all very funny, the way he was brought up to the front. And anyway, it doesn't matter. So, but, you know, I mean, yeah, he did it on live TV. And, yeah. you know, I mean, if you look in, during COVID at the, the press calls where everything was scripted for the journalists and there was no second question moving no on. Second question. You know, I, I always wondered. Um, I've met Steve James and he seemed a very nice genuine man um doctor yep, yep, he, yep. he really did uh but you do wonder how he managed to get in front of rishi sunak <laughs> no sajid javid oh yeah it was sajid javid. so basically Sorry. the problem is we'll come to that the nhs the problem and the medical system there's problems in both but what i'm trying to say is there was no dissent and it was very scary and lonely and i was being attacked for my stance on medical ethics and now when I did this video on mRNA harms, that video went viral and was seen by a million people within a day. So clearly, people resonated with that message. And instead of being contacted by my private hospitals and the medical directors of these private hospitals, the national medical directors, and being said, oh, Ahmed, that's a very interesting video. And, you know, we don't, we're not sure what you were talking about. Can you please tell us? And what should we be looking into? And... What was your concern? Which I would have done if I was mm. in their shoes. I would yeah. have been like, I saw your video and what are you talking about? Like, or, you know, this is fat. This is really interesting. Like, and surely it's better to speak up when it comes to a matter of patient safety and be wrong than know about a safety, patient safety issue and remain quiet. Mm. Isn't it? It's better to speak up and at least investigate. 
No, no, I had the opposite. Two of the national medical directors contacted me um, within 24 hours and said, we've seen this post. You've breached our social media policy guideline and we want you to never post on this topic and issue again. We want you to withdraw this video and if you ever post on this issue again, we'll have to consider your practicing privileges. It is extraordinary how they silence people. I mean, if you've trained for an, you know, a, a lot of years to a become a, a, a surgeon. I have had to go for a lot of hoops. And you go through all of that. I can understand why it's so hard for people to want to throw away their career. Uh, there are very few brave <sighs> surgeons like you. I mean, I, I will, you know... Um, Dr. Asim Malhotra, you know, he's done the same and stood up, but he lost his father to the jab and, and you know, was jab damaged himself, uh, which is why he had to stand up. Um, but, you know, is shouting, you know, Dr. Mike Yeadon, even though he's not a doctor or a surgeon, you know, he was the vice CEO of Pfizer for years. Um, you know, we've seen the Pfizer drop, although... I, you know, the Pfizer drop got no coverage in the, the mainstream. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, we are running out of time, but I do want you to tell us what the Pfizer drop was. So basically, they said, um, so a court somewhere asked for a release of the documents. Well, first of all, let's say that Pfizer had asked that none of these documents were released for, for 75, 75 years. years. Yeah, so they said, we can't release it and it's going to be locked up for 75 years. Then they said something like, we'll release it, but it'll be over decades, basically. We'll give like one page a day or something stupid. But then they were forced to release everything, the stuff that's been redacted. But you go through it and there's so much wrong, basically, that has been covered up. But it's it's deeper than that. I think Pfizer is just a scapegoat. It goes to the government level and beyond. There's some really deep shenanigans going on. Um. And I don't know the full facts, and that's why I'm going to stay a bit vague okay. about that. But it's something really weird is going on, and proper investigative journalists are looking into that. But what I can tell you is, having spoken up, I've been subjected to bullying and harassment, as far as I can tell from what I how I feel by these private hospitals. I was referred to the GMC on a bullshit accusation of being transphobic, which I'm not. Um, I think they were looking for any reason to get mm. me and make my life difficult. The GMC... And I was threatened with a referral to the GMC. I was told that, you know, I will be referring my concerns to the GMC. Okay. So, and I've never been referred to the GMC. And I was like, well, okay, good for you referring your concerns about me. Is that, is that, am I being referred? Will I get a referral? Will I get notification from the GMC? You know, I didn't know. You know, I was waiting. Um, and, you know, months went by and I wasn't sure. Have I been referred? Have I not been? I was like, I think I've been referred. And I would say to people on the podcast, you know, I've been referred, you know, and but I don't know if I have or not. And I would I, I would speak to my friends and say, have I been referred? Like, do you get a referral from the GP? Do you get a notification? <laughs> like, what happens if you've been referred? And then people said, if you're not heard anything, you're not referred. And I went on the GMT website and it said, we get lots of referrals and complaints and this, and we investigated this, like, murder and, you know, sexual misconduct. And, the, and nothing was social media posts or whatever, which is what I was being accused of, you know, inappropriate social media activity. <clears throat> and I was like, I don't think I've, I don't think I'm under any referral. Anyway, in September, a second hospital notified me that they were suspending me immediately because I had failed to notify them of a GMC referral. 
And I said, I don't even know if I've been referred to the GMC. How do you know about it? Oh, we know about it. And you failed to tell us. So we're, st we're, we're stopping you from practicing here. And that was where 80% of my practice was. That's where I'd been for 10 years. It was my bread and butter. So overnight, here we go again. Totally decapitated. And it turns out through Freedom of Information and FOIA, the first hospital had already notified that second hospital of the referral. There's a referral form. And in that form, it says, have you notified the doctor? Yes, no. And they ticked the no box. So they had never formally notified me. They had never shown me the referral form. I never had anything from the GMC. And the GMC actually kicked it out in September. In September, I, th I can't remember the day, 18th or 19th, they replied to the private hospital saying, we share your concerns about him, but there's nothing here from a fitness to practice point of view. We, we, we will not be investigating him. They never contacted me directly. I even wrote to them in August saying, am I under any complaint or investigation or anything? And they wrote back saying no. But in September, a day or two after the hospital was notified by the GMC that no action was going to be taken, they then used the fact that I hadn't notified them, which is a bullshit accusation, and suspended me. Not because I've injured a patient, harmed anyone, done anything wrong. I've got a fantastic clinical record. No, they were looking for any pretext. Even though they had sat on the knowledge that I have apparently been referred for three months. But because the GMC wasn't going to do the dirty work, they thought, right, well, we need to find some reason to get rid of him. So now I'm absolutely financially crippled, not earning any money for months. And the nail in the coffin was in December when the last one of the big hospital that I was working out of, like, you know, in London, suspended me saying that, you know, you posted something on your Instagram account. Someone in the staff has complained about it, anonymous. And, you know, it could be taken out of context and undermine trust in you as your clinician. So we're suspending you with immediate effect. And that's it. That's a career over. Career over. And I contacted two of the small private hospitals in London saying, can I come and work with you? No, no response. So you're on a blacklist now. That is I'm that a, career. And and the thing is, over. yeah, and I was losing so much money. I mean, I'm now like, I don't have money to pay the bills. So I've had to get rid of my secretary, close down shop. And I've applied to the GMC for voluntary erasure. I'm not under any investigation by the GMC. You know, the the London hospital that suspended me still is going ahead with the investigation, even though I've told them I want nothing to do with them. I don't want anything to do with the Princess Grace Hospital. Screw you. You can screw your investigation. I've done nothing wrong. My podcast is out in the public domain. I wasn't even speaking. It was like, imagine you take a clip of me and post it, and then someone complains about you and suspends you because I was speaking. Mm. And it's ridiculous. It's just bullshit, bullshit going on here. Um, so I can't practice anymore. So there's no point in me holding on to my GMC registration because what's the point? I haven't got the money for appraisals and licensing or anything. And, you know, it, it's, it's just obvious they don't want me. And frankly, if that's the way it's going to be, well, I don't want them either. So now, you know, I'm pivoting and changing what was a hobby. My podcast was a hobby. And I wanted to do it properly. So I had some savings. And I invested all those savings into this hobby because this was my way of fighting back. So when my social media account kicked off and I started getting 30,000 followers, 40,000 followers and in February, March, people were saying, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? I was like, 
I'm tired of all these freedom WhatsApp groups, and you know, there's celebrities there and famous people, and you know, they're all just talking and everything. And like, it's great to network, but no, nothing was happening. And I'm a doer, I'm a surgeon, I like to do things. And I was like, listen, we need to inform the public, we need to educate them, we need to empower them to make the right decisions and choices. Because as long as they don't know what's going on, and they, they just trust blindly in the government and the state, we're screwed. Mm. So, and the doctors and... Right, so I'm going to use my voice and my credibility and my platform and reach out to people. I'll do a podcast. And that's how my podcast was born. And it was just a hobby. It was my way of venting and sticking it to the man. Yeah, the problem is that you're not allowed to vent and stick it to the man in that profession. <laughs> yeah. So it's, not a, it's not a profession you can do that. <laughs> I know. So now... Hopefully, I'll just find some way of monetizing it because it's very successful. I'm getting a ton of listeners, ton of followers, and I'm slowly getting people subscribing on Substack and Spotify. So for anybody who doesn't know, I want them, I want you to absolutely <sighs> tell us, Doc Malik, it's the Doc Malik podcast. So Doc Malik, <sighs> yeah. where can they find you? What can they do to support you so that you as one of the few lone doctors continue to get information out because it is crucial that we is i'm going to look at camera here it's absolutely crucial that we support doc malik's show this show all the shows of those of us who are trying to get information out because if you don't support us we won't be here it's that simple isn't it really yeah we i mean i got no backers and you know you've talked about how much it costs to do your podcast it's a thousand pounds per episode People don't understand like how much you've invested in this. I, I, I like you. I just remortgage and remortgage. And, yeah. But Pe people, you know. people just don't understand what's involved and how much time and effort. And I'm, and you know, I do it all in house and how all consuming it is. So I might have worked two and a half, three days a week before. Now I'm working seven days a week. Yeah, I it's do. my day and but day in life, day and night. I'm just you know, my kids. I I've had to really now control myself because the kids are saying. Dad, you're always on your computer. Spend time with us. And I hate hearing that from them. Mm. But I'm doing this for them. I'm doing this for my kids and I'm doing this for all the other kids out there. Because if we don't, we're in a real load of shit. We're in deep trouble. So if you can visit Doc Malik, D-O-C-M-A. Okay, look at, straight in the camera. Um, so, you know, the whole www thing, dot D-O-C-M-A-L-I-K dot com, docmalik.com. Um, you can subscribe to my Substack. It's just £5.50 a month, less than a Starbucks coffee. You can do a founder member plan and pay a little bit more if you feel generous. Or um, just subscribe on Spotify. You know, and, you know, I've got a fraction of my listeners paying. So, you know, I've got thousands, thousands, 40,000 listeners a week. And I've got 500 Substack subscribers. You know, if <laughs> just a little bit more subscribed i would at least be able to pay off my mortgage and everything so that's all i'm asking you to do is just please subscribe and support dr ahmed malik because without brave men like him we're not going to have our health anymore we're heading into some really dark areas i think of health and uh, this podcast is here to give you information and to teach you, introduce you to all the wonderful people that I have met on my journey. And it's been one hell of an eye opener. You know, I always joke that, um, yeah, I went down the rabbit hole, but I had no idea there were so many fucking Warrens down there. <laughs> it's just like, whoa! Yeah. I mean, I, I do Sometimes feel you need like to back Alice out. in Wonderland. <laughs> Sometimes you need to back out and get yeah. in the sunlight. But the thing, the key thing is, look, 
what I've discovered is doctors can't speak up and say what's really true. So I went to a wedding recently. I've talked about this. And, uh, you know, two doctors came up to me. Oh, my God, you're Doc Malik. You know, I'm getting this quite a lot now. I'm like, oh, yeah, hi. And I don't really know how to deal with this, by the way. This kind of newfound fame is <laughs> a bit weird. Um, and they're like, oh, we listen to everything you say, and it's amazing. We agree with everything, all the things. You're joining all the dots, this climate scam, the judiciary, the media, the politicians, the transgender issue. Everything's connected. I'm like, yep, yep, yep. Oh, we love it. Fantastic. And then I said, what are you guys? And like, we're GP partners. Like, so what are you guys doing? Awkward silence. These two, Nothing. much taller than me, just started looking at their feet. They're just looking, they're yeah. avoiding eye contact. And then one of them, after a very long pause, said, you know, that's my family behind me. And he had some kids, like 12, 13. He went, two of them, a boy and a girl. And he went, I'm not in a position to lose it all. Well, this is it. And then I, I turned around to him and said, see that table behind me? I've got three kids, younger than yours. I have a mortgage. What makes you think I'm in a position to lose it all? Guess what? Another fucking awkward silence with no response. So then I patted him on his arm, because he's quite tall, I patted him on his elbow. I went, all right, guys, stay there. And I walked away. And this is the problem. What makes people think, I can fucking lose it all? If everybody's going to be like, oh, I can't lose it all. Evil flourishes when good people do nothing. nothing. Right? This thing where, oh, I can't afford to lose it all. No, no, I'm sorry. It doesn't fly. You might as well just say, I was following orders. What happened to yeah. those people? Yeah. What happened in the Nuremberg when they said, oh, we were following orders? It's not good enough. No, it's not. And this is, again, the problem with the centralization of the NHS, when your whole income is dependent on one organization, when you've got one regulatory body that controls the other and, and the other. It's like, you know, and you're there, and if you step out of line, the whole ton of weight is coming down on you. Do you see how centralization is yeah. really quite evil? It is. When you've got a little few people who are corrupted by Big Pharma, so anyone who's interested, they should listen to my podcast with Kim Witsack who did a really deep dive and she described a spider's web influence of big pharma on the medical establishment, profession, journals, scientific community, medical school training, medical education, the whole shabam. And it's, the tentacles are deep. Say that name again, who? Kim Witchak. I'll give Kim, you her details. Yeah, we'll put, that in the, we'll put that in the show notes. So what I'm trying to say is the so next time you or your loved one, or you, or your family, or your children, go to any ER, hospital, clinic, whatever, GP practice, you sit in front of a doctor with a problem. How do you know that doctor is giving you the best advice for you that's in your interest and not, in fact, what's actually in their interest and going to stop them getting into trouble and getting suspended? Because sometimes, quite often... The two are very different. And I will say to you and all your listeners, you cannot trust that doctors are doing what's in your best interest. They're doing what the policies are telling them, what the guidelines are telling them, and what's going to stop them getting into trouble. Because as far as I know, only 0.0025% of doctors were willing to say what was really right and important for their patients. Now, if that doesn't terrify you, I don't know what does. And that's why... When you, when you support me, 
you're not just supporting me and my roof on my head and my mistress and my Ferrari and Lamborghini, you know, none of that crap. You're helping me fight against the system and protect you and your family. I will absolutely echo that. And I'm just going to finish this podcast with, I've got a new tagline. Um, and that is, you know, the system that's coming in place. So the doctor of your future is you. And that's why we're bringing you this information so that you can learn how to look after yourself. Thank you for being here on another episode. Doc Mallet, that was great. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Thanks. Thank you.